There are 14.8 million Jewish people who live in the world. If you're doing the math, that's 0.2%. of the world's population. Why? 14.8 million people, that's the size of Buenos Aires in Argentina. 14.8 million people, that's the size of Manila in the Philippines. 14.8 million people, that's Calcutta in India. That's a few number of Jewish people that live in the world. Do you know that though there are only point of the people in the world are Jewish, 20% of all Nobel laureates are Jewish. And you go from sector to sector to sector. Some of the finest performers and people in each sector are Jewish. Uh, What world do you want to pick out? Let's pick out the motion picture world. Why, did you know that uh, Harrison Ford's maternal grandparents are Jewish immigrants from Belarus in Russia? Kirk Douglas, of course, and famously Steven Spielberg, uh, setting the standards for excellence in that field. What, what about music? Oh, let's take the violin. Dick Zuck Perlman. You've ever watched his broken body uh, crutch over to a stool and sit down You won't believe what happens to the violin when he begins to play. Let's take the financial world. Uh, Joseph Baer of Baer Stearns, Jewish. Alan Greenspan, Marcus Goldman of Goldman Sachs, Jewish. I mean, there's there's 0.2% of the population, and yet very elite in their fields, and so influential in every sector. Why, if you didn't know better, you'd think they were blessed by God in a unique way. I have a friend who was always telling me, the Lord smiles down on the Irish. I go, we're going to see that Saturday night or not, but uh, coming. But I believe you can make a great case for the Lord smiling down on Jewish people because of being Abraham's children and his promise to Abraham, through you, the whole world will be blessed. Now, it wasn't just to any nation that the law of God was given. Moses brought the Jewish people out to Mount Sinai and the law of God came. And so the law of God God spoke to Moses and his people at Sinai. And so along the way, they developed a disposition that said, hey, we are God's gift to the world. And in a sense, they are. But it developed sensibilities that show up in Romans chapter 2 as we kind of read through this book together on Sunday mornings, it developed sensibilities that said this, hey, we have the corner on the religious market. We're fine with God. By the way, they are not the only group in the world who has concluded, hey, we are fine 
with God. And here's Paul, who's walking through humanity sector by sector. He starts in Romans chapter 1, and that's the, yeah, everybody likes to pull out Romans chapter 1 and look out the window and say, oh, with that wicked world out there. A friend of mine just started teaching at a public school, an alternative public school, which is when they can't have you as a part of the student body because you don't live within the boundaries at a regular public school, they send you to an alternative school. And she's teaching there. And so the first day she said, look, I would like to get to know you on a piece of paper, write down your name and tell me something about yourself. And so that night she's going through them and she comes to this page and a young man wrote his name down. And under his name, he wrote, I'm an opinionated degenerate. Welcome to her classroom this year. Well, you may read uh, Romans 1 and you say, I'll tell you what, he, th- th- that's one of those guys that Paul's describing in Romans. They're, they're, just, they're terrible. They need Jesus. But then you get to the first part of Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. What's going on there? You know, there are a lot of people in the world, they are not religious. They're not Jewish. They're not Gentile and associated with the religion. They just live. They, they, well, they would say, hey, I'm all right. You're all right. And I'm all right. And as I look around, I, I, I try to do good. And, 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 and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And, and, and they're leaning on their self-righteousness. You know, really, they're, they're, they're pretty good people. They just don't have the quality of righteousness that God would accept. But if you ask them, hey, are you okay? They say, yeah, you know. What, do you think I'm one of those Romans 1 opinionated degenerate persons? Not at all. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. I watched a neighbor's dog when they went out on vacation last week and helped that little lady across the street. And I got her mail when she was in the hospital. Uh, I'm, you know, I qualify for being okay. Now he comes to religious people. So what he says in Romans 1 The degenerates, they need Jesus. And by the way, it's true. But then he says to the self-righteous, you need Jesus too. It's like, what? I have a need for Jesus. But now he gets to the religious folk. Look at verse 17 of Romans 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I want to go three different directions this morning. First, I want to frame a great problem that humanity has, and that is the notion that they are way okay with God. As Paul explains, here's what he calls it in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of God, the good news from God. As he explains it, we will never get to the good news. It is not good unless we realize we need what is in the good news announcement about Jesus. So first, 
I want to frame this problem of overconfidence and show you what it looks like. Secondly, I want to show you how these people see themselves. We live in the identity politics world. Everyone is identifying in a particular way. How does a religious person identify before God? Uh, Spoiler alert, they identify like this. I'm fine with God. And thirdly, then, you and I have to live this week, these eight verses. What does it say to us? We who recognizing our sin have come to Jesus as a savior in repentance and faith. What does this passage say to us? That's where we'll go. First, what does overconfidence look like? Look at the six quotes that stem right from here. Most all the world thinks they're all right with God. If you poke them, they'll say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. Me and God are good. Well, notice what makes up the anatomy of this perception. It's six things stated real easily. But if you call yourself a Jew, that first, we're the right kind of people. The word Jew at its stem is a Hebrew word that means praiseworthy. And what it is saying is your life represents something that is praiseworthy to God. It's worthy, a life worthy of God. It's really a noble vision for how to live. That's what this term Jew actually means. They're Jews, the religious elite. Of course they're fine with God. Hey, we're Jews. Now, secondly, we know right from wrong. You rely on the law. He uses the word rely. Now, that's one of our four words. We rely on Jesus alone for our salvation. We renew our minds that have been affected by sin and deceit. We reflect Jesus before a watching world, and we learn to relate to each other. He uses the word rely here. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely, what were they relying on? Where's the source of their confidence? Where they said, hey, we got the law. We must be okay if we got the law. God gave it to us. Hey, we we know right from wrong. Yeah, Eric, I have a Bible. I know how to live. The third part of the anatomy of this self-confidence is we can talk a good God game. You ever run into anybody who could talk a really good God game? They knew the God vocabulary, whatever that is. By the way, my encouragement is for you not to use it. (laughs) Ever met anyone who was full of God speak? They boasted about their joy in the Lord. The Apostle Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but it is in power. The power of a transformed life. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passing away. Behold, the new things are coming. Fourthly, we know the Bible. Why are you getting on us? We can have this overconfidence that's filled based upon our knowledge. You call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent. We know the Bible. Now, remember the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. I'm not against knowing the Bible. One thing that troubles me is biblical illiteracy, people who don't know the Bible. 
I want an experience with God. I appreciate John Calvin's sense that what we want is a scripturally mediated experience with God. We need to know the Bible. But what we really need is to live the Bible. We move from knowledge to wisdom. Remember the Hebrew word for wisdom? It means skill in living. I love that. The knack that we've lost in modern times is a knack for living. We don't know how to live responsibly. We've lost all sight of what it means to be self-controlled. We've never been taught how to subliminate our emotions to what is true about God. We're not very good at self-talk, which reminds ourselves of what is true and stays right in the tranche of living joyfully for God and taking the next step. This is a super temptation for Calvary Baptist Church to substitute knowledge for the formation of an authentic Christ-like life. Um, We love the Bible here, do we not? Isn't it true that living the Bible is a lot better than loving the Bible? And isn't it true that you don't love the Bible till you live the Bible? The Bible lived out is what makes us look like Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is that here. Fifthly, we use our knowledge of the Bible to pass right judgments. They would say, hey, look, we we have the Bible. We know what's right and wrong. We use it to pass judgment. We approve what is excellent. I use my knowledge. I look around and I see and I pass judgment. I know what is right. Notice this air of superiority, this air of I'm religious, I'm in it, I know God, I know what this means, and I've got it all together. It's far away from New Testament, authentic Christianity, and Paul's running after this crowd in this section. Lastly, the sixth part, we are acutely sensitive to discern the way things ought to be. Look at verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Religious people believe that they're way okay, they know everything, and they have it all together. They're the first volunteers to lead the blind. They're the first volunteers for the flashlight holders for those in darkness to instruct the foolish, to teach the children. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 14, when he said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Now, what's interesting about their conviction is verse 19. They're cocksure about it. Did you notice the word sure? They're cocksure about their conviction. So here you have a religious person who's saying, hey, I'm fine, I'm religious, I'm way good with God. And they're certain about their conviction. Now, how do spiritually proud people then identify themselves? There's two different ways. These folks perceive themselves in a couple of different ways, and that's what he's unfolding here. First, if you'd ask them, they'd say, we are guides to people who haven't yet seen the truth. That's in verses 19 and 20. The attitude in these verses is, hey, look, we are God's gift to people who need religious teaching. We'll straighten them out. 
We know. We'll tell them. We can do it. They couldn't have more confidence. I remember I went to a pastor's conference in Cleveland, Ohio at Alistair Begg's church. I've been a couple times. In fact, Jason Walsh and I went once. And I, I, I was trying to remember. I think, it was, I think it was when Jason was there. I may have it wrong with me. Um, we were singing a song together, and it was joyful. And it's male voices in this room that's resonating the sound. And um, the song was a little buoyant. And Alistair's Scottish, and that means he's blunt, he's playful, and he's got a great sense of humor, and he's happy. And so he just stopped and he says, you know, we're, we're missing this. this. This song moves, and what we need is someone, we need, to, we need to express our joy with some enthusiasm. Who can clap? And who knows how to lead us in clapping? So one poor chap volunteered to clap. And so he got up on the stage, and they started through the buoyant piece again. Now, don't ever volunteer to clap unless you know how to clap. There are certain doctrines of clapping. You've got to clap on the right note. And then you have to wait and hit its corresponding note and beat so that your rhythm makes some coherent sense. And if you mess up the rhythm and you are the canter, you'll lead to a clapping train wreck that is very great. So this guy, I don't know whether he got nervous or whether, but he soon repented of volunteering because he started out, and, and you kind of haltingly, and then we were all, and we were waiting, and then, and then some others were trying to clap. And finally, Alistair runs up on stage, and again, their intent at Parkside is to encourage everybody and, and to, to have a good time before the Lord and just say, Lord, we are weak, you are strong, will you please help us? And, and there's a lot of fun and banter that goes on. So Alistair then tries to recover this terrible wreck that we were involved in, and the song ends, and everybody's just kind of sitting there giggling. And Alistair looked at him, and you'd have to know him in his humor, and um, it doesn't sound as, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but he says, what's wrong with you? You don't even know how to clap, and you volunteered to clap. What is going on? Dude, if you're going to clap, clap. You got to, don't volunteer unless you know how to clap. And we, we all laughed, and, and it was a good moment. That guy will never be seen again at the conference, but uh, at least he won't volunteer again to clap. Um, it's possible to volunteer to clap and not know how to clap. Here they are, viewing themselves in spiritual pride. Damn, we're... We got it together. I'm fine with God. I'm good to be right there. The second way they perceive themselves is we are the wise among us given to enlighten others. Um, you ever been around a person who once they said something in a meeting, they concluded, and they wanted everybody else to conclude, well, that's now brought down from Sinai, and there's nothing else to say about the issue. What's wrong with you? Just get them my position and we're, we're done talking about this. All right, what's the next thing you want to talk about? It's like the Mr. Once and for All who's going to offer the final summing comment. They're full of themselves and their perception of their prowess and the gifts that they bring. Rather than being captured with God and the gift that he has brought in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ doesn't fit in the same room with the arrogant one who is full of self-confidence and arrogance and their own hubris about who they think 
they really are and who they actually are. You know what? I love those given to lifelong learning with a curious spirit. The humble, eager to learn, able to be instructed, the listener. I love those humble learners. Is that us at Calvary? Or are we sitting on top of so many completed Bible studies and so many marginal notes that we're full of it? But somehow the it is not the fruit of the Spirit and what it means to be like Jesus. Finally, what does this passage say about how we're supposed to live? The Word of God is for living. What does it say? It, there's three ways that these eight verses get involved in the stuff of our lives. Number one, we understand that knowing a bit about the Bible is not the same as personally knowing and relating to Jesus Christ. Knowledge is bluffing. To know is important. A base of knowledge and knowing your way around the block and the word of God is so important. But it's not the end. It's the means to relate to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord, who discloses himself in this book. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We all know people who have a lot of notes in their Bible and attend a lot of studies, but who are inauthentic in how they relate to others. Living the Bible is when the Bible takes up our lives and transforms who we are. In that sense, the learning is for living. We understand that knowing a bit about the Bible is not the same as personally knowing and relating to Jesus Christ. Are we for knowing a bit about the Bible here? Absolutely. As a means to experiencing Christ and being transformed by gospel power. Secondly, we allow the Bible to frame our understanding of ourselves and our identity before God. Who are we? Who is he? How shall we decide? It is revealed in the truth of the pages of Scripture. We live aware that earnest and sincere religious people will be lost in eternity. And this is the part that sends a chill up our spine. Jesus said this. And I know the Beatitudes are real nice and the Sermon on the Mount had a wonderful, sweet beginning. Blessed are they. And it goes down through the Beatitudes. Here's how it ends. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Oh, that's it. That's what you got to do. Just use the Lord's name in, 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 in a good context. Lord, you call out to the Lord. You know, that, that, that's it. Who, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here the word of the Lord. That's sobering. That's sobering. Do we realize we can be sincerely mistaken? Of course we say to ourselves, but opinionated degenerate, they need Jesus. 
Yes, the self-righteous need to get off that kick that their righteousness is going to be their ticket that they've made up themselves. You know, they're going to hand that to Jesus and he'll say, oh yeah, you can come in. But as well, the religious person, the sincere religious person, the earnest religious person. Only a simple faith and an earnest understanding of our need for Jesus will give us hope. And that's the glory of the gospel. You see, Paul has to get them all in the room looking at each other saying, we need Jesus, before he says, here's the gift. He's available. This is God's good news for humanity. That's the book of Romans. That's what he's doing. Who are we really? Didn't that old gospel hymn have it right? We are only a sinner saved by grace. It's not our earnestness. It's not our sincerity, notwithstanding our sin. It's that Jesus is a great Savior. And he offers the free gift of eternal life when we stop relying upon ourselves and alone place our faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, we put hypocrisy to death with an authentic life of faith and reliance upon God. Look at the end of Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now the Gentiles, that was a term that meant the godless. The Jews were, of course, the people that had God. You had the Jews have gods, have God, and then you had the Gentiles don't have God. They were viewed as the godless, the people apart from God, the world apart from God. The world apart from God looks at the religious world that are inauthentic and says, what's all that God talk you're using when your lives look like that? They come to blaspheme the good news about Jesus. In fact, did you notice the word dishonor that's used in the text? Who boasts in the law, dishonor God. It's possible for religious people to dishonor God by the hypocritical way in which they live. We all need mercy. That's what God gives us that keeps us from what we deserve. It's available. What's at stake is dishonoring God. You realize that it's possible to be Baptist people, religious, who dishonor God and blaspheme the very message we say we're sharing with lives that lack integrity in Christ-likeness. The guy in Luke 18 that Jamie read this morning, that passage after Lisa read John 10. One guy stood up to pray and he said, Lord, I thank you that I'm nothing like that dirt bag over there. I'll tell you what, I'm religious. I, I go to church and I give my gifts and boy, I'm always you know, helping out other people and I'm always doing the right things. Then this guy, when he prays to God, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew who God was. He knew what God was like, one who gives mercy. And he knew who he was, a sinner. And Jesus said, this guy went down justified. 
And when we go down justified, it reshapes how we live. He uses the word embodiment in chapter 2 and verse 20. You see, you and I embody the gospel. Here we are getting ready to launch out first day of the week. We're getting ready to launch out in the week that is before us. We will embody what we say we believe. How shall we embody it? There's something exceedingly undismissible about an authentic life that is not hypocritical. A consistent integrity that shows up in authenticity that is not easily dismissed. Because the integrity of who they are, because Jesus lives in them, shows up and it's transforming. But hypocrisy blasphemes our message, dishonors God, and takes away our credibility. Gandhi said this, I like their Christ. I do not like their Christian when he looked at the church. Nietzsche said, the Christian is going to have to look a lot more redeemed before I will believe in their Redeemer. Gypsy Smith said, the evangelist from a former generation, there are five Gospels that are read. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. Now what are they getting after they read us? A friend of mine just went in-house counsel for an organization in the public square. They just changed their name. They changed their name to the Center for Christian Virtue. The name's great. I'm an advocate of Christian virtue. I wish Christian virtue owned the public square. That's not the day in which we live. But what a thrill to live out the virtues of Christ in our day. But when they changed their name, I thought, wow, did they put up huge targets on all their backs. Because nothing would destroy the health of the organization more than have them to live in some other way other than Christian virtue. Say, Eric, I'll tell you, I don't know what's wrong with God. The influence of the gospel today seems to be waning. Well, let me assure you, there is nothing wrong with God. And it may have everything to do with the quality and the authenticity of the lives of people who say they are followers of this one who loved us and gave himself for us. All we need is grace. The good news this morning is it's available. And he wants to make us his people, to live out with integrity the life that he has called us to live. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know those here this morning who know Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ and with me recognize the weakness of their own sinful heart yet forgiven and recognize our need of you desperately. Thank you that you're available to us in Christ. You know those, Lord, who are not unlike 
a Jewish community leaning on, I do a religious thing once in a while. Mounts give me half credit. I'm at church today. I'm, I'm a little religious. I'm not sincere about the little bit of religiousness that I am. And Father, you, you know others who have never received Christ as Savior and find in this moment the opportunity to open their heart to you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you never tire of fresh starts, new beginnings, and new birth. Oh, Lord, what love you have for us in spite of us. What love you demonstrated in the person of your Son, Jesus our Lord, to whom we sing before we leave this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.